I've been living in Tokyo for north of a decade now, and I'm actually thinking about moving out of Tokyo. I guess with that being said, let's roll the episode. Welcome to the Tokyo Lens Podcast, and as always, if you are a regular listener, welcome back. I'm recording this mid-afternoon after a big lunch. Not gonna lie, I'm a little sleepy. How are you doing today? I hope the day is treating you well. Yes, I open up the episode by talking about how I am thinking about moving out of Tokyo. We will touch on that a little later. And before we get to that, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I want to cover. But one of the main things for today's episode is going to be following up and answering some questions and touching on some details about camping in Japan. If you have been following any of my other content from Instagram to Twitter to YouTube and beyond, you will know that I have spent at least the last month, if not more, pretty much camping out all the time. I don't even know how many times I've camped this year. Definitely north of 10 times maybe less than 20. It all started with the unnamed adventure number two with Victor, our travel series. And we're going to be talking about that a little later on too, provided I don't forget, because today as well, we're going to be doing one of those just raw, uncut episodes where I just, I I put it out there. I put it all together. I've been enjoying doing these lately, and I hope that we can have a good time with you today. So, That being said, camping in Japan as a whole, this year was my first year to go deep down the camping rabbit hole here in Japan, and I have to say it has been a spectacular time. If I start by painting the picture, there's a variety of different types of campsites in Japan, ranging from free, moderately priced, expensive, all the way up to glamping. If you don't know what glamping is, it's glamorous camping. So you don't really stay in like a tent and everything like that. You'll stay more in like a beautiful cabin or like one of those big dome tent things and it's got like a bed and everything set up inside of it. And I had cut the longer version of the story from a video that I had recently put up. But Right at the peak of the lockdown, this company out in the area of Mount Fuji invited me out to do some glamping. They're like, we would love you to come and check out the place. Everything's on us. Just come out, have a great time. Introduce it to your followers before camping season. And I took a look and honestly, I just wasn't willing to get on trains. And when I did a bit of research, it seemed like even at that time, it was moderately popular. So I made the decision to not do it this year. But inside of all of that, I decided, well, I, I do want to go out and do actual camping, though. That is that is something that I really, really want to do. And so I started by putting together my camping supplies. All the basic stuff, obviously, a tent. All my initial camping was done via hammock, so I put together all of those supplies. I got sleeping bag and the, the mats and everything, and I actually grabbed more of everything than I needed because my buddy Taiki was coming up from Saga Prefecture, and I figured just grab a bit extra, and that way he doesn't have to bring everything along with him. And 
that's that's the beginning of the story. Just been camping like absolute crazy lately. And I kind of want to walk through some of the campsites, some of the experiences, and answer some questions. So one of the first campsites that we stayed at kind of set unrealistic expectations. You see, it was with Victor and I, and we were out in Tokushima Prefecture on the island of Shikoku. Now, this campsite was a free campsite, required no registration, had no gate to get in. We went up there. There was three sets of flat land, the grounds, if you will. Uh, This is all going to be going in the Unnamed Adventure 2 official video, which again, if I don't forget, I want to touch on a little bit later. But In this campsite, it was basically just big open fields, super accessible. You just drive right from the city roads straight up into like the the base of a mountain, but not quite into the curly mountain roads. And there it is. And we set up our hammocks under a gazebo and just slept out the night. Didn't have a tent yet at that point. Pro tip, if you've never hammock camped and it's something that you're interested in trying, make sure that you have something to put between you and the hammock, whether it be a nice thick blanket, some kind of quilt, an air mattress, something. Otherwise, the back of the end, the hammock, the bottom end will just suck all the heat out from your body. And even in the summer, you will get quite cold. So that was actually... A pretty nice campsite. There was a bit of like a fire pit area set up. There's a space where you can wash your hands. And I think two of the really big questions that I got this time was regarding regarding the fire pit itself. So I brought along with me for all the recent camps a portable fire pit that I think I picked up either on Yahoo or on Amazon or something for around three, four thousand yen, thirty, forty dollars. The entire thing is a little bit bigger than maybe one to two books. You open it up, there's a wire frame, there's a base that you put inside of it, and boom, you're ready to go. But People kept asking, what do you do with the ash once it's all done? And from this free campsite all the way up to the paid campsites, near the hand-washing stations with the sinks, there's usually a bin for you to dump ash right there. So that is not really a problem. A lot of them are equipped with bathrooms and um, what is the word I'm looking for? sinks and uh, I, I can't write trash cans there it is the word is trash cans so the even the free ones not all of them but most of them do have these amenities now the real trick is in finding them and I use everything from Google Maps where I will type in campsite or camp in English or camp Joe in Japanese or I will look up blogs and then if there is a website and or a phone number I like to call and confirm because there's a really big caveat a really big trick and challenge with campsites here in Japan you see a lot of campsites here in Japan require you to register and kind of book 
the campsite very far in advance. Sometimes as much as three months in advance. There's no way you're going to know the weather three months in advance. I try to book the campsites on the day or the day before if possible so that I at least have a decent idea of the weather. But this is not necessarily always an option with campsites here in Japan. So the vast majority, I would say, are like that. We only, I'd say maybe, okay, not vast majority, but two-thirds. Two-thirds feels like a pretty fair uh, way to put it. And then there's a lot of campsites out there that just don't have information, don't have websites, don't have phone numbers. And then you get out there and you realize, oh, this was like a, a campsite for like Boy Scouts or something like that. And you're like, well, I don't want to use this space. I don't want to, you know, encroach on their area. And then there are other ones that are basically just for locals. There are ones that, for example, in Saitama that I had considered going to, but when we called up, they're like, are you a resident of Saitama? And I was like, no. And they're like, well, then you can't stay here. And I was like, oh, okay. So there are challenges. It's not as simple as just like, hey, there's a campsite, I'm going to go there same day. And considering all the signs and whatnot on the roads for them, we'd be driving along and we'd be like, oh, there's a sign for a campsite. Let's pop the name into Google, see if we can't find a phone number. We'd call them up and they'd be like, oh, sorry, you need a book a month in advance. So that was one of the really big challenges that we came across. The second campsite on the Unnamed Adventure 2 that Victor and I came across was actually north of Kyoto. You see, we wanted to pull a bit of a ninja mission into Kyoto one night. There was a single photo that we wanted to get in the Kiyomizu-dera area, and we decided we were going to head out to Kyoto at 3 o'clock in the morning when there would be zero people, park the car, get out, set up our tripods, get the photo, and get out of there right away. But in order to do that, we decided we should probably get some rest first. So we went north of Kyoto, maybe about 30-40 minutes into the mountains, and we found a campsite. It was labeled on Google Maps. This was one of the ones that had no information listed. There was no phone number, no website, but we decided to go for it simply because of how close it was. And when we got up into these mountains, the roads got really narrow. And as we approached, there was a river that we had to cross with the car. Now, this river did have a road running through it, but the river was actually flowing over the top of the road. It was like they built the road, but they didn't want to build a bridge for, you know, they didn't want to put the expenses in to build a bridge. So they just let the water run across the road. And we were able to get across there and we found a giant woodworker's shop out in the mountain. I decided to ask them about the area, about the campsite, and I approached expecting them to be, you know, these middle-aged construction-esque guys. And when I got there, there was this super fashionable guy, maybe 24, 25 years old. He had like the, the, the French beret off to the side of his head and he had like a little scarf around his neck and he's doing woodworking. And he's like, oh, hey, how you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm, 
I wanted to ask about the, the campsite over there. And he's like, oh yeah, people stay there all the time. It's actually owned by the Boy Scouts, but as long as you keep it clean and you take all your garbage with you, nobody's going to have a problem. Thank you for asking us, by the way. However, it's supposed to rain tonight, and because you would need to get back over the river in order to leave, if it rains the water on the river gets so strong that it wouldn't be safe for you to cross. So I don't really recommend it, but in the end, it's up to you. So Victor and I kind of deliberated over it. It was a really nice campsite, but we decided to hedge our bets because the rain was supposed to get pretty heavy that night and not stay at that particular campsite solely because we didn't want to get trapped there and not be able to escape for a day or more of our eight-day adventure. So we made our way deeper into the mountains, up into the winding pass and narrow roads. It was dark, dark at night at this point, and we found a very large free campsite. Now, this one here also didn't have a phone number, didn't have a website. But we decided we were going to follow the exact same rules. We only planned on staying there for a couple hours anyway. We weren't going to be having a fire or leaving any trash. And because of how much the rain had picked up, it really wouldn't have been safe for us just to turn around and head down the mountain anyway. So we crashed there for about four or five hours, which, in honestly, actually, we didn't. You see, before we went to go to sleep, we decided to do a bit of exploring, check out the area, see if there were bathrooms, etc. We found the bathrooms, but posted right on the bathroom door was a sign saying there was a recent bear sighting as early as about a month before we were there. And we were like, oh, this, this is not I ideal. Um, and we didn't really have signal. I had zero bars of signal. Victor had sometimes one bar of signal and this is where we did our bear research and we learned as much as we could so if you are camping one of the big questions that i kept getting is what about bears what about animals which is one of the reasons why i had initially defaulted to hammock camping over tent camping solely because there's two main animals that you're bound to come across at these campsites one being a bear and if you come across a bear you're pretty much out of luck anyway and the other being inoshishi or boar and if you are elevated through a hammock off the ground i put mine up fairly high just above waist level the boars would just run right under that it's not like they're gonna like climb the tree and do a tightrope walk along your no they're not gonna do it they're just gonna zip right under you but there's a couple other pointers for anybody who's interested but worried that I figured I could share. Number one, if you're staying at a major campsite, a paid campsite, chances are you're not going to have as much of an issue with wildlife for a couple different reasons that we will loop back to. If you're staying at a free campsite or at a less popular campsite, there are a couple things that you can do. Number one, having some form of light on the entire time is going to be incredibly important. So, for example, what Victor and I did at this campsite is we were, again, in a bit of a gazebo area because it was pouring down rain. We found some light switches. We just turned them all on. The other thing that you can do, 
noise. If they hear human voices or noise produced by humans, they're less likely to approach, which is one of the reasons why when hiking through Japan, you'll notice a lot of people have bells on them, which some people find soothing and peaceful. And other people, when they get onto a crowded hiking trail, it's just like, oh my god, it's like jingle bells everywhere I go. But this keeps the bears kind of at bay. It lets them know, hey, there are people over there. And honestly, like if you were a bear, would you want to go where the people are? No, it's just you're rolling the dice with that one. So noise and light helps. Also doing things like avoiding foods with smells. So we would always make sure to actually eat before we got to a free campsite and we would eat something that doesn't smell and inside of the car, something like a wrapped onigiri or something like that. And we wouldn't bring any food with us to these free campsites just because it was an unnecessary risk. So outside of smell and light and sound, there's also, like, for example, bears are less likely to approach if the area has an ammonia smell. There's all these different things, but one of the things that we did is we'd also play music or a podcast at night. So I recently went camping quite a bit with my buddy Taiki, and any time that we weren't talking amongst each other or we weren't filming a scene for our video we would have a podcast or an episode of something playing in the background loud enough that it would hopefully have that human voice feel to it and keep animals away. In the 10 plus times that I have done camping over the last, oh, I don't know, two to three months, I have yet to run into any animals. Obviously, knock on wood, we don't want to be running into any animals. Come across deer on the road, surprisingly all the time, like in the mountains. You will be up on a mountain path that was very difficult to get at. Lots of very steep winding roads. You'll be up at the top of this mountain. There's just like a deer right there on the road. And Deer are bad enough when you're on like a, a straightaway barreling down the road because, as you know, they can do some very serious damage to the car. But when you are up on a mountain road and you come around a corner and you're face to face with a deer right there. oh! Actually, at one point in Victor and I's adventure, we actually had to pull over the car. We'd come around a curve and right there at the end of the curve was a deer on the road not in a good condition and it was very unfortunate so we it was like still kind of alive so we weren't able to like move it off the road we didn't want to touch it so we put some pylons that were nearby coming around the curve so that people would know and went to a nearby convenience store because we had no idea where we were and asked the staff if they could call the police when the police arrived, we pointed out where the deer was on the road. It had just been like five minutes down the road, and they went and took care of it. So animals are a thing that you sometimes need to contend with. So that night that Victor... Yes, we're going all the way back. I sidebarred pretty big this time. That night that Victor and I stayed at that campsite deep in the mountains of Kyoto, we didn't sleep. I slept and Victor stayed up pretty much the entire night just watching out for bears and researching bear information, which is great. It's one of the reasons that we were able to, you know, 
learn everything we learned about how to avoid bears. Thank you for that, Victor. And so the other big issue that we were coming into, coming to a lot of these free campsites, and it held very strong when Taiki and I started our adventure. We were in Nagano, deep in the mountains, and there was this crazy dangerous road that was just cliffs off to the side. It was like the Star Wars universe. No railings, and just huge drops down the side for almost no reason. And we got out there, and... There was no turning back, not after the number of hours it took us to drive out there. The nearest campsite was like two and a half hours away, and we had zero signal. Now, this became kind of a concern, and over on Discord, we were talking about how there are something called uh, locator beacons. Um, there's there's a short form name for them that off the top of my head I cannot remember. But somebody had asked, are these locator beacons legal in Japan? And the answer is, no, they're not. However, personal GPS devices like, uh, for example, the Garmin InReach or the Garmin InReach Mini, which are basically GPS slash uh, GPS uh, emergency beacon type things. And you can, some of them have functions that you can send messages through. So if you do run into trouble, you can not only send your coordinates, but you can send either preset or, um, you know, through your phone, you can send messages saying what happened. And these are legal. So if you are interested in camping, hiking, or exploring in Japan and you are thinking about bringing some form of GPS or locator beacon with you, I highly recommend that you do the research and make sure that the ones that you're bringing, uh, whatever it is, is legal in the country or at least usable in the country. Uh, honestly, it took me about five minutes of Google research to find out that the one that I'm considering getting, I'm considering getting with the, getting with the, going with the uh, Garmin InReach Mini, just because it is small, simple, and gives the opportunity to, to send a message if I run into any trouble. This is completely legal inside Japan, easy to find, but this campsite that Taiki and I went out to, we set up right beside the bathroom because near the bathroom, there was a speaker that went off at 9 p.m. So we're like, oh, okay, they are making some noise here for us. And the bathroom's light basically was on a timer that went on and off all night. So again, we had the light, we had the sound, even though it was in this completely just quiet area with nothing around, we had no signal we kept ourselves safe that way and had podcasts and whatnot playing in the background. But after all of this experience with free campsites, I decided, you know what? It was time to level up. It was time to step into the world of paid campsites. And when you step into the world of paid campsites in Japan, the rabbit hole runs deep. As I said before, there's everything. There's your basic campsites. We found one as low as $8. There are super expensive campsites. There are top-end campsites. Rule of thumb, if the campsite says it's an auto-camping site, chances are you're probably going to pay a little more. But one of the first ones we went to was near this 
gorgeous shrine called Togakushi Shrine. Now, the shrine itself, gorgeous as it is, is really more about the long, long entranceway of incredibly tall trees. And that night we decided, okay, we'll, we'll take a look at it. We called them up, and as with many paid campsites, they said, you need to be here by 4 p.m. After 4 p.m., there will not be any staff. It's going to be 1,500 yen, so about $15 as a fee for the night, and an additional 500 yen per person. And we were like, okay. And this would have changed if we had had a larger tent, for example. I have like a three to four person, like just small tent for me and my gear or for me and a guest. But if we had had like a five person, six person tent, that fee at this particular campsite would have been higher. Then we got there and it looked like it was going to rain. And they're like, oh, do you plan on using a tarp? And I was like, oh, just one to cover my tent. And they're like, oh, that'll be an extra thousand yen. And I was like, what? even though it's taking up the same space. And they're like, yeah, tarp fee. And I learned later on going to other campsites that a lot of people will set up a super large tarp in front of their tent as like a cover. So you've got your tent and then you've got like an awning. There's a tarp. So it does take up double the space. That makes sense. And they're like, also, if you want to bring your car down, that's going to be an extra like 1,500 yen or 1,000 yen. And then this campsite had all the amenities. They had vending machines, they had wood that you could purchase, you name it, it was all right there. But Taiki and I did not stay there right away. We checked in and then we went out for a drive to do some photography of a crazy spiral bridge out on the edge of Nagano and made our way back. By the time we got back, it was super dark. We packed up everything at 4 a.m., off to Togakushi, and then off to our next campsite. The next campsite was spectacular. By far my favorite so far in Japan. You drive through the mountains, all these winding roads, for the better part of an hour easily. And, oh, it's okay, I don't even know where to begin. So, the last 30 minutes is just pure mountain driving pretty much all uphill, winding roads, you get to this this mountain area where you're up high in the mountains and there's this lake called Nozoriko. And it's just surrounded by mountains on all sides. And you get to the, the edge of the lake and there's the campsite. And the gentleman who ran this place was just spectacular. He was such a nice guy. We hit it off right away. We ended up spending a great portion of our night just chatting with him. Uh, from here, you use a buggy known as a rear car to load everything from your car into the rear car and then take it down. The campsite is about 800 meters away. Um, honestly, it's, it's pretty close to about a kilometer's walk away. And you get set up right there on the edge of the lake. This place was spectacular. In fact, I ended up going back again last weekend, despite it being about a four-hour drive from Tokyo, just because I like this place that much. And this place also has things like meat and sausage and hot dogs and steak and everything that you can purchase, and it's incredibly reasonably priced. They have ice cream, they have beer, and it really wasn't that far off from convenience store prices. You're looking at like 
two, maybe 300 yen for a can of beer and like a dollar fifty to two dollars for some ice cream. It was just wonderful. I really, really liked it. And more amazingly to me was the grade of meat they were selling for the price that they sold it. I don't know if you're following me on Twitter, but I recently posted a picture of a steak that I got there. Steak was bigger than my hand opened up wide. It was massive, beautifully marbled. The gentleman was telling me it is A5 rank beef, and the entire thing only cost a thousand yen. That's around ten dollars, and it was really good. I didn't bring like a big knife with me to cut steak, and I was able to pull it all apart with chopsticks and eat it. It was so tender and nice, and it was really really good. And this place was really good on the weekdays because it was quiet. My buddy Taiki and I at the time were one of the only people there this past weekend when I went back. Uh, Friday had maybe five or six people spread out over an area that can accommodate what they say anywhere between 80 to 100 tenths. And Saturday night was busy. Saturday night was pretty near capacity in terms of tents, but it's kind of nice. Everyone is quiet. Everyone keeps their distance. Usually around 9 p.m. is when things start to really quiet down. People are still talking and hanging out. And then very much like camp back home, people will just wake up fairly early in the morning, usually around sunrise, which at this time of the year is around 5.45-ish. The light goes up, people wake up, start packing up their tents, maybe making breakfast. That, oh, that last campsite, I am telling you, that is, that is quite the campsite. And that one as well is about 1,500 yen for the campsite for the night. And then a 500 yen fee per person. Uh, and again, if you want to put up a tarp, there's a tarp fee. And they give you a little thing to hang off of your tent there. It's really quite nice. Now, there's still so much more left to explore. I definitely want to do some glamping. I want to see that side of things at some point. Camping season for this year, at least here in Japan, is just about over. But I do have an adventure that I'm going to be doing pretty soon where I'm going to be motorbiking out into the mountains and camping on a free site or a trail for a night so I can wake up and do some exploration. That is an adventure entirely for the Patreon side of things, which the Unnamed Adventure 2. So last year, the Unnamed Adventure 2 was this vlog-esque series of videos with a storyline going one, two, three, four, and there was the entire story. This year, the Unnamed Adventure 2 with Victor included videos like the Nutchi Falls with the waterfall in the background juxtaposed against the pagoda and the, uh, the abandoned school staying a night there, or the scarecrow village which we've talked about previously but behind the scenes of all of that i'm actually in the midst of putting together the eight day road trip as one single 30 to 40 minute video for the full adventurers tier of patreon 
the video itself is a lot more relaxed, a lot more casual, a lot more personal, and a lot less edited. It's just going to be kind of tossed together. Here's the eight-day story of our adventure and all the misadventures and sidebars and everything that happened behind the scenes. So if you're interested in seeing the full eight-day adventure this year, it's going to be over there. And the recent trip that I did with my buddy Taiki, quite similarly, we produced individual videos for our favorite places, but the full four-day adventure itself is going to be a completely behind-the-scenes story for the full adventurers tier. And that brings me around to talking about the point that I mentioned at the beginning about how I'm thinking of moving out of Tokyo. Now, this is not an immediate thing that I'm looking at, but I am thinking forward into the future. With the way the world is and, you know, the, the uncertainty of how long it could be this way, I think it's really good to consider alternate options, alternate lifestyles. And one of the things that I've done recently, as you can tell, is just getting into nature a lot more. This has been nice, just getting into nature, spending time out on the road. I have always loved driving. I have always loved the mountains. And so I've started to look at options uh, within an hour to two hours of Tokyo, but also in completely unrelated areas around Japan where I could just set up and live there potentially in the future. Right now, I would describe myself as very much being in the window shopping phase of things. I want to know what's out there. I want to see what the options are. I want to imagine different scenarios, weigh out the pros and cons, all of the benefits as well as the demerits that would come along with it. But you never know what life's going to throw at you anyway. So it's always nice to have alternate options. I think city living is great, but I once heard a quote that was, live in the city once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in the country once, but leave before, or was it? I think it was like, live in New York once, leave before it makes you hard. Live in Southern California once, leave before it makes you soft. And I've Back in Canada, I loved living between the cities and the countryside, kind of having that mix. I had family right in the city, I had family out in the countryside, friends in both places, and that mix is something that I always enjoyed. There is a great level of convenience that comes with living in a place like Tokyo. It's very accessible. I mean, like, can you imagine if I lived out in the countryside? I'm very aware that if I wanted to, like, take a plane somewhere, it's going to... It's going to be work. I'm going to need to get from wherever I am out to the airport. Was right now, I can just jump on a train and get to the airport if I need to. But since February of this year... I haven't really taken trains. I've taken one train since February of this year. It's been a very major lifestyle shift for me. Outside of that, I have been bicycling, motorbiking, or skateboarding pretty much everywhere I have gone. It's It's been either that or by car. I have not used public transportation except for maybe once. Yeah. No more than once since February. So when your lifestyle kind of shifts like that, and I find myself avoiding things like going into crowded convenience stores. I haven't gone to restaurants as a regular thing, and I don't even know how long. Um, 
it just kind of has shifted my mindset. Who knows what the future holds? I am excited to see we could still be right here in Tokyo two, three years from now, or we could be on the next step of an entirely new adventure. Even if we are in Tokyo, it could be a new adventure. Who knows? Who knows? So with all of that being said, this is kind of what I wanted to share in today's episode, the behind the scenes of what it is like to camp in Japan. This may have really raised more questions than it answered. And if that is the case, don't be afraid to shoot me something on Twitter or leave a comment on the recent video. Maybe DM me on Instagram or something like that. You guys know I enjoy the interaction I just realized, just realized that we are well over half an hour on a podcast that I had initially only planned to sit down and do for maybe 15, 20 minutes. I hope you've gotten some value out of it. Hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining this one. And you guys know I will talk to you again real soon. Oh, by the way, I've linked a bunch of stuff in the description box from campsites to the fire pit thing that I was talking about and more. So if you're interested in any of it, it's all right there. Okay, we'll leave it at that.